it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the amazing, the incredible, the all-around awesome Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Leslie. You also have a wide-ranging assortment of awesome to yourself. Why, thank you. Every week on the podcast, Dan and I will go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news. With all that out of the way, let's get into it. Number one. Batting lead off this week, the Oscars have finally arrived. The hostless ceremony airs Sunday on ABC, whose new entertainment president, Carrie Burke, has promised a, quote, brisk three-hour telecast, although producers aren't betting on that actually happening. There's an array of big-name stars set to present Best Picture, including Barbara Streisand and Serena Williams. Queen, with frontman Adam Lambert, will perform. Dan... The road to this year's telecast has not been a smooth one. I mean, you didn't even mention your host, Maroon 5. And I didn't mention Kevin Hart. Oh, wait. Jeez, it really has been a couple of weeks since we've legitimately talked about Kevin Hart. No, we, a couple of weeks ago at Press Tour, we had Carrie Burke and she was on a panel. It was her first Press Tour panel. We already discussed that. And she made a big deal of talking about how she had initial concerns that the Oscar telecast was going to be a horrible fiasco. But then she realized that any conversation was good publicity, which I don't know if it's true. Yeah, the old adage, any press is good press. I don't know that it's actually true, but even still, she also attempted to make it sound as if the only fiasco that they dealt with this year was the Kevin Hart situation, which we've already covered. He was hosting the Oscars, then he wasn't hosting the Oscars because people discovered without having to do any real research at all that he had a long history of homophobic tweets and jokes and other stuff. And then he we call that homophobia. Yeah, that too. I mean, you know, Hey, the man should not be represented by his tweets. He should be represented by the things he said in his stand-up and the jokes he's made in movies. So anyway, <laughs> but... We also call that homophobia. I am, I'm well aware. <laughs> but then he went away. Then he was briefly going to be the host again, thanks to that wonderful triumphant interview he did with Ellen DeGeneres, which, if memory serves, went well, right? No comment. <laughs> So yeah, so that was clearly the only thing that's gone wrong with the telecast this year. Or if it's not the only thing that's gone wrong with the telecast this year, we fortunately have a special guest to discuss other things wrong with the telecast. We are now going to welcome uh, my name doppelganger, spelled differently, don't get confused, Mr. Scott Feinberg, THR's Senior Awards Analyst. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. I'd also like to be known as Oscar Crisis Manager for the remaining few days prior to the Oscars, if that would be okay. Well, that would seem to imply, and I mean, you know, heaven help me for implying this, that the Kevin Hart situation was not, in fact, the only fiasco that the Academy Awards have had to deal with this year. 
Believe it or not, it is not. There was a matter of most popular as, you know, to keep this sort of high school themed, which has all felt, you know, throughout the season. They had an issue where we were going to have this popular Oscar category added to the 24 that already exists, where you would have, I guess, if they had fully hashed out the idea, which they didn't, sought to recognize a movie that was popular. But what would that mean everything else is? Not, you know, best not popular Oscar or whatever. It was just a not fully formed idea when it was announced for reasons that I don't know why they felt they had to rush it out, but it created a problem that the Board of Governors and everybody had to backtrack from. I actually think it could have been a viable idea if they had planned a little better and anticipated the issues people would have raised, but that's besides the point. They've also now had the board vote to condense four categories from the show and present them in taped format later on, a little cut down. That they also have had to backtrack on. So that goes with the theme of, you know, let's give it to Kevin Hart. Let's backtrack from that. Let's, you know, just a lot of different things. And I guess you could say it dates back to giving La La Land an Oscar and then taking it back. So it's just been a, <laughs> a lot of backseas over the last few years. Well, the thing I'm wondering is in each one of those cases, and I know that we disagree on whether the popular movie category could have been done in any way properly. Um, in each one of these cases, to me, it feels like a failure as much of, as anything of PR and presentation. I mean, who do you blame somebody, Scott? I need you to blame yeah. somebody. Well, it's <laughs> nice because I have to deal with all these people. So that'll be very helpful. I think I would primarily blame the Board of Governors. And it's just a structural issue that they... I don't know how they wound up in this situation, but you have 54 people on the Board of Governors. The idea that any decision, let alone a smart one, could be made by 54 people with equal power is idiotic. There are 17 branches of the academy. They are each represented by three governors on the board. I think they could probably cut that down to one governor and maybe be a little more effective. The underlying issue in terms of categories and the length of the show and all of this is that while the actors branch, one of the 17, is by far the most populous, they are way outnumbered by the governors of the 16 other branches. That means that, you know, you, you've got 48 other governors who can outnumber three other governors who are sort of there to supposedly represent the interests of diversity. But the whole point is that you can't make decisions in that way. You also can't have a president of the academy who's supposedly setting the agenda when the president has to be reelected every year or cannot even do so because you're only allowed to be on the board for a certain number of consecutive years. So if the person's been on the board for a few years, even before becoming president, which is the case with the current president, he's out of there within a year. So the whole thing is a clown car situation. And the CEO is not really particularly popular at the moment either, you know, came in and fired a lot of people and didn't rub people the right way by doing that. So it's unfortunate because I am the biggest fan of the Academy's history and their mission and whatever, but they're not making it easy these days. So if you had to pretend that you can pie in the sky what the best case scenario of this weird-ass Oscars that right. we're building towards could be, what would it be? What, what would the best case scenario for Sunday be in terms of what the telecast looks and feels like? I think that the best case scenario is that we wouldn't really miss having a host, that they've somehow figured out a way to open the show effectively and excitingly, and that they've programmed their various other presenters to handle transitions in the way that a host would, and that they've come up with a contingency plan to have somebody intervene if things start to go wrong or need to be reacted to, like Jimmy Kimmel 
somewhat did when the envelope mishap was happening and somebody needed to referee the situation and take control. I don't know what would happen at this year's Oscars if something really went wrong like that because it's not any specific person's problem. But also then that you would have winners that, you know, would be unobjectionable enough, you know, basically not, I'm not saying I root one way or the other here, but like if Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody are the big winners, you're going to have a lot of carping in the ensuing years, not let alone days. But if it's more, you know, your Roma, the favorite Black Panther, Black Klansman sort of dominating the field, I think people will be able to kind of accept that a little better, at least, you know, in terms of where we hear the carping is mostly on film Twitter. And I'm not saying everybody should try to please this relatively small sliver of the overall population, but I'm just saying this is where you'll, the sense of whether or not the show succeeded or failed is probably going to be adjudicated by, and yeah, started with that group. Are ratings a lost cause? I think that's one area where the Academy takes flack, and it's it's a little silly because every award show has basically been trending downwards, like most TV Everything programs, TV period. Yeah, down. It's a fragmented audience out there more than ever. First of all, it was always nonsense when people would say there were a billion people watching the Oscars. There were never a billion people watching the Oscars. It was a made-up number that people couldn't check. Now it's a lot of people watching it, but there are also more things to do than ever. The internet, phones, games, gaming, you know, whatever. Twitch, I don't know what the hell everybody's doing, but... Uh, you know. <laughs> You're just throwing out words now as alternative activities. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's less to... There, 500 channels, guys. Come on, you know. I just, no, it's 500 shows, Scott. Right, there's okay. 7 million sorry, channels sorry. and platforms. Yeah. I just find it so funny, though, that the popular Oscar, the purpose was, let's get more popular nominees in there. The expanding of the field to 10, it was, let's get, you know, let's get The Dark Knight in there. Let's get that. And suddenly we have a year where... It would be completely reasonable to predict that Black Panther could win Best Picture and no one's going to watch. That that seems... Yeah. Odd. I mean, <laughs> I never understood that logic anyway. The Best Picture is the last award of the night. So people are not tuning in because, oh, Black Panther won. Let's watch the rest of the show. Part of it is, yes, if you look at years past, it seems to correlate with the popularity of the nominees. And maybe that will be the case this year. And that would be a slight uptick possibly for the Oscars. You know, where Titanic was huge with and Billy Crystal I believe hosted that year the year before Billy Crystal hosted and it was terrible and I think maybe even a year or two after same thing so I don't think it's about the host I don't think it's about the runtime I don't think it's about anything except you know what else is going on in pop culture that people might otherwise choose to consume and how much do they care about what actually happens on the show and to be honest when your top nominees are Roma and the favorite even if Bohemian Rhapsody and Stars Born and Black Panther are in there I don't know if once the show gets going and Roma's potentially or the favorites, you know, winning all the early awards, I don't know that it's going to matter. Well, one more thing I want to talk about before we go to the actual awards and Leslie can talk to this, the the whiskey cavalier of it all and how ABC is using this as a platform and whether that seems like even a reasonable idea, honestly. I mean, this is the second year in a row that ABC has not gone to Jimmy Kimmel immediately after the Oscars. And last year they had a sample of the Alec Baldwin show, and we know what happened with that. that God, I totally forgot that was a thing that death. happened. <laughs> this year it's they're trying scripted. It's an hour-long action dramedy called Whiskey Cavalier, starring Scott Foley from Scandal and Lauren Cohan from The Walking Dead, from executive producer Bill Lawrence and Warner Brothers Television. It's a big budget action dramedy show and the reason abc is giving it this big of a platform is it goes back to what carrie burke told reporters at tca 
She wants to bring women back to the network. And this is ABC's best bet to do that at this point with a brand new show, giving it a big launch. And this is a preview. So they're going to air the whole pilot after the Oscars and then re-air it in its regular time slot with its official fancy, fancy premiere on Wednesday. So just three days later, they're going to air the same episode again. So this show is clearly a big priority. And it's a big mandate for what ABC wants to do, which is bring women back to the network. And after NBC stole the crown from them with shows like This Is Us. Interesting strategy, especially given that before five minutes before recording this podcast, resident Oscar expert uh, Scott Feinberg hadn't even heard that That's this right. was a show I airing. I after. think your direct quote was, "What's whiskey cavalier?" <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a drinking hand, game for the Oscars. As established, though, <laughs> there you, go. you are not the demographic. Drink every time you see a, a whiskey cavalier right. promo, either during a commercial right. or pop up on screen. Uh, whiskey cavalier and American Idol. I expect drink a shot of whiskey yeah. every By time. By the time you whiskey, whiskey cavalier, cavalier actually starts, you'll be on the floor. There you go. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to our second topic. Let's stick with the Oscars, shall we? And actually take a look at the nominees. Number two. Scott, what are the big narratives you're most interested in seeing? Is this the year Netflix takes home Best Picture for <laughs> their TV movie, Roma, that was also oh, released in theaters? Oh, interesting. That's where we're going to go with this. Okay. <laughs> look, there's a lot of history working against Roma. In 90 prior years of Oscars, you've never had a non-English language movie win. There's not often these days that you have a black and white movie win and not often that you have a movie with starring nobody you've heard of prior to that movie winning, let alone the Netflix factor, where there's obviously a segment of people in town. I think it's maybe been overstated how many, but there are certain people who feel that Netflix represents an existential threat to the movie going experience as we know it and therefore must be stopped in its tracks. But I think that the key thing to remember, and I'm not, you know, it's weird when that's the movie that everybody sort of regards as the slight favorite, but the narrative to keep in mind also going into this is that we've never had a more divided precursor run up to the Oscars. So the Directors Guild did go for Roma, but the Screen Actors Guild gave their top prize to Black Panther. Producers Guild went to Green Book. You know, Writers Guild went to Can You Ever Forgive Me and Eighth Grade and on and on and on. And meanwhile, a movie that didn't win any major precursors, but has sort of been a constant presence as a nominee at almost everything. Black Klansman could win. Star is Born has been nominated for more things than any of them. And while it seems to have faded as a contender generally, it might actually play better on the preferential ballot that the Academy uses to determine Best Picture, where they don't want just, you know, when you've got eight nominees, a movie, if it was just straight out who gets the most votes for picture, you could have a winner that has only a small handful of people relatively who love it and then everybody else hates it. They don't want that. That's what I would call the tree of life guarding against phenomenon because that's a movie where you had a few people that really loved it and everybody else hated it. And that conceivably could have won if you didn't have a ballot like this, which looks to reward a movie that most people at least like by factoring in you rank all your picture nominees so that you know, unless there's an outright majority after one round of just counting the number ones, they start to look at other things. So I think that it is a very wide open race and that's not just a cop out. I think you can, you know, ask anybody that pictures, you know, really wouldn't surprise me if it went to anything except Vice. Actor and actress look a little safer with Rami Malek and Glenn Close. And then supporting acting is also interesting. Supporting actor, everybody thinks it'll be Mahershala Ali, probably will. But Richard E. Grant's got the kind of charm factor that's really, you know, he's he's sort of rewritten the campaign playbook. And then Supporting Actress is an absolute crapshoot between any of the, the five, and we can get into that more if you'd like, but that's basically <laughs> yeah. So who, who are your picks? I want to cheat off of your Oscar ballot, Scott. Who are you picking? Well, 
with the disclaimer that I don't want to hear from anybody if it doesn't work out for you. You know, you're on your own here. This is you follow at your own risk. I am going to go with Roma. I'm going to go with Quaron as the director. I am going with Malik and Glenn Close and Mahershala. And then for supporting actress to come back to what we were just talking about, you know, just to take a moment and explain why this one's tough. Regina King, and, and I know Daniel Feinberg and I have spoken about this at length. Regina King is an incredible actress who people mostly know through TV work. And I think that her outstanding TV work, which has brought her Emmys in three of the last four years or something, including for shows that were already off the air, which is they have to really like you to, to give you recognition for that. She won the Critics' Choice and Golden Globe Awards for Best Supporting Actress, beating Amy Adams and others who are nominated against her, Rachel Weisz, Emma Stone for The Favorite, and now at the Oscars, they're adding Marina de Tavera from Roma, too. But the issue is the Critics' Choice and Golden Globes are voted by journalists who know her work from TV and cover this. Then she was not nominated at all, not even, you know, it wasn't like she just lost. She was not nominated by SAG and BAFTA. So the actors and the Brits, who make up a, a actually a huge part of the Academy, unlike journalists, decided not to even nominate her for whatever reason. So in the history of these awards coexisting, only one performance has ever not been nominated for BAFTA and SAG and still won an Oscar. That was Marsha Gay Harden for Pollock 18 years ago. So it doesn't mean that, look, all rules can be broken at some point. It may well happen here, but I don't feel confident, like a lot of people do, that it is going to be Regina King. So in that case, who is it? Rachel Weisz won the BAFTA, but she's now got to compete against a co-star, and the voting is not only British people. You've got Marina de Tavera, who nobody knew prior to Roma, and even afterwards, our brutally honest ballot voters said, I, when she got nominated, I wasn't sure, was she the grandmother in the movie? <laughs> she, which she was not. She's an excellent actress, and she did a great job as the mother in the movie, but she's not exactly you know, a household name. And so I kind of, by default, come to Amy Adams, not with any great degree of confidence, but she is about to take over from Glenn Close as being the most nominated performer without a win who's still alive. If Glenn Close, well, maybe she maybe she won't if my theory works out, because I think that Amy Adams could, for Vice, a movie that the Academy did see and like and nominate in a bunch of categories, could be the person who kind of comes out of nowhere here. But I just, I think it could be any of the five. I just am not ready to like put all my chips on Regina King like a lot of people are. Yeah, I don't know that I <laughs> that I would put all of my chips on her. I think if I had a certain number, though, yeah. I would. Yeah. It just, and we have, as you say, discussed this before. I think that all three of her Emmy winning performances were of more substance and better performances than this. This is a, mm-hmm. a good performance in a very good movie. But I still, I think it's better than Amy Adams's performance, which would probably be just so predictably Academy Awardsy that she would win for this <laughs> after having been nominated for many yeah. much better performances. Right. But yeah, I think the the favorite women cause trouble because to me they're both better yeah, and those are better performances, yeah. but I don't know how you choose and I don't know that either one belongs in the category they're in. Exactly. And yeah, I kind of wonder. So am I crazy if I think a Black Panther Alfonso Cuaron split seems It's possible. I mean in actually maybe for the last five years or something, you have had a picture director split, probably partly because of this preferential ballot, where director has generally gone to the person who had the nominee who had the hardest technical challenge, which I guess might well be Quaron again. But picture goes to the one that people love, that, that, that has sort of heart behind it, whether it's Spotlight or Moonlight, you know, or Shape of Water. And so it is certainly possible, but I think Black Panther could be somewhat undercut by, well, look, we know they've had hesitancy about 
any comic book movies even get this is the first one that's even been nominated so that's one thing to keep in mind but also in terms of what's going to be the movie about race in America that people want to get behind the most of the nominees this year because you're going to have to have and I don't think it helps Black Panther that there's also Black Klansmen and you know for a sort of different audience I guess Green Book so I think that it would be part of what may benefit Roma is that there is not one clear alternative. And the thing that I actually think makes Black Klansman maybe to some degree even more formidable slightly than Black Panther is that it actually directly speaks to the current moment of life in America. And the Best Picture winner often does reflect the zeitgeist. So here is the one movie that, even though it's mostly set in the past, it ends on Charlottesville. And it's the one opportunity for voters to basically say with their vote, fuck Trump. You can't really, you know, they're arguing that Roma is about how we treat Mexicans, I guess, and immigrants. It's not really. It's not. And the, nor, nor was The Shape of Water last year when they tried to make that argument. It's, it's, that's taking it a little far. That's like Lady Gaga at the Grammys saying that A Star is Born is about mental illness. I think it's as much about peeing your pants and incontinence as it is about mental illness. And that's no disrespect to people that want to take mental illness seriously. But oh, that is not it. Yes. <laughs> Or to them, right, or to them. But anyway, it really would not, again, surprise me if anything other than Vice, because look, Bohemian Rhapsody, which gets ridiculed for being a lightweight movie and, of course, for its association with now widely accused pedophile, I guess, sexual abuser, Brian Singer, the original director of the movie who was replaced. I mean, it is an international phenomenon and people love it and they love Freddie Mercury and the Academy is more of an international organization than ever before. So even that would not be outrageous as a possible winner are we gonna see malik perform with queen i doubt it i think that he wasn't even really fully singing in the movie i don't think he's gonna do it live there i'm kind of surprised bradley cooper's gonna do it with lady gaga but but not I mean, in that, character but that, not in but character, that las vegas that... thing was awesome with them i want to see that give me that right now <laughs> yeah but that was also part of their underlying issue where it was like guess who's here bradley cooper bradley I'm going to surprise you. Come on up and you're good. Please come up, please. No, I don't think I will. No, you sh oh, you insist. Okay. All right. I'll come up. As if that wasn't completely planned and coordinated in advance to humanize them and say, like, you think that they ever would have put him in the position of, you know, please come up and saying with the whole crowd rooting for you. And he wasn't already agreeable to doing it. It never would have happened. But it was great. No, I it was, a, it it was, was a lovely movie, <laughs> lovely moment, lovely movie. I have no, I, I have no problem with the movie at all, but I think that, their issue has been inauthenticity from the beginning. Well, let me go out on a limb and say that I think that's going to have worked, and I think Shallow is going to win. So you <laughs> Don't know, go too far out. I'm, I'm going way out on this limb. You can totally <laughs> blame me if you lose your Oscar pool because right. Shallow loses. Right. But uh, I, I got a good feeling about Shallow. Right. You mean you don't think the one about when a cowboy loses its boots hey, or whatever great, from Buster Scruggs? That's a Scruggs? great song. I, right. I love me that song, and right. it's a little strange that right. it got nominated. Yes. But. <laughs> Well, Scott, we know this is your most insane time of year. Thank you so much for joining us and taking some some time out of your day. Thank you for having me, even after my uh, Emmy's commentary recently. <laughs> Good luck getting through Sunday. Thanks. Number three. For our third topic this week, let's close the book once and for all on what prompted Netflix to cancel its last two remaining Marvel dramas, Jessica Jones and The Punisher. Dan, before we even get into all of the, the business behind the cancellations, were these two shows that were worth saving? Well... Don't ask me. 
Ask my friend Marshall Mathers, who tweeted just the other day, Dear at Netflix, regarding your cancellation of The Punisher, you are blowing it, exclamation point, exclamation point, sincerely Marshall, all in caps, so you know that Eminem meant it. So I'm perfectly happy in this particular case to cede to Eminem's opinion, since I haven't had the time to watch the second season of The Punisher. I've also been instructed by several of Eminem's fans that my attempt to convince Eminem to watch one day at a time and to tweet enthusiastically to save that one was not in fact a valid proxy. And I am shocked that Eminem fans are not large one day at a time fans. Look, if you put the Punisher and Rita Moreno in the octagon, I'm taking Rita Moreno nine times out of 10. I'm not even going to touch that one. But I think it's interesting that you brought up one day at a time and the fact that that's on the bubble. That also relates directly to what's going on with all the Marvel shows and those cancellations. The key thing here is ownership. Marvel shows were owned by Disney. Disney is launching a Netflix rival service called Disney Plus that will launch in the fourth quarter of the year with a slate of Marvel scripted TV series starring many of the big names from its Marvel Cinematic Universe. Netflix is making a big push to own more of its content. And when Netflix makes decisions on renewals and cancellations, it views costs. So having to pay an outside studio like Disney or Sony in the case of One Day at a Time, a licensing fee, and then they pair that with whatever mysterious viewership information that, that they look at internally. 40 million. 40 million. No, that's, I, I, no, I reject that. Uh, so basically, it's an analysis. So they look at who's watching and they look at what they're having to pay and what the return on that investment is. And then you look at the critical response, which I don't even know how much that weighs into what Netflix does. But because they canceled Everything Sucks, my beloved Everything Sucks after one season, which had a lot of critical buzz going for it at the end. But these are shows that were largely the reviews haven't been that great the last couple seasons. I mean, I think you continue to point out how bloated a lot of these Netflix shows feel at 13 episodes, which was part of the original deal that included Daredevil, Luke Cage and Iron Fist, which were all canceled months ago. And I mean, as I wrote for The Hollywood Reporter this week, this is the beginning of the streaming wars that we're really seeing ramp up. It's all about ownership. It's about Disney and Netflix continuing to clash. Netflix signed Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris away from ABC. Both top showrunners had years remaining on their overall deals. ABC's former entertainment president, Channing Dungey, guess where she works now? Netflix. She's going to be working likely with Shonda. Try to guess. Come no, on. Dan, I was going to get on. it right, read the, read the room, my friend. <sighs> so this is as much about these two companies continuing to go head to head as it is about laying the groundwork for the new streaming wars to come. And a lot of this, too, we talk about this what feels like every week because it's one of the biggest stories of the year. When you have services like Warner Brothers and Comcast preparing to launch their own streaming services, the big question is going to be how much of their content shows like Friends and The Office, which are huge hits on Netflix, or so we've been told. How much longer will those shows remain on Netflix or will those two bigger companies pull them for their own platforms and make subscribers have to pay for Netflix to keep their originals, to pay for Comcast to get reruns of The Office and whatever else is going to be on that platform, to pay for whatever the Warren Media Service is going to be called, which will have Friends and maybe Shameless and, and a whole bunch of DC shows. I mean, this is the new landscape we're living in. Now, this has been such a, a protracted and yet inevitable process, the jettisoning of these Marvel shows. Is it simply an issue of kind of revolving contracts that because, I mean, once they started doing this a couple months ago, it was clear there were going to be no more by the time they were done. Why the dribs and drabs? Is there any 
reason for that or just well, what I think happens? Part of it is, look, they were in talks for another season of Luke Cage. The scripts were all but done. Netflix wanted to reduce the episode order. Marvel, we're told, didn't. And like I said, the original order was for four 13-episode shows. 13. And that's a licensing fee that they make from these. And Netflix was like, mm, we're going to pass. We don't really need this. Especially now that they've got deals with other franchise people like Mark Millar, Shonda, Kenya. They're doing the Chronicles of Narnia. They've got so many other things that they're doing that they all own that at a certain point, they got to cut their ties. And the reason they canceled Jessica Jones right now, season three hasn't even premiered yet. Showrunner Melissa Rosenberg left ABC Studios for a big overall deal at Warner Brothers, meaning they would have had to find a new showrunner for season three. The stars of Jessica Jones can read the writing on the wall, and they were all going out for pilot season. And Netflix didn't want to keep them and hold them when they knew that they were probably going to cancel the show anyway. Like going back to that original deal that Netflix and Marvel made in 2013, there was no time limit on that deal. That deal wasn't expiring. There was no like, well, we need to renew our pact and that will cover all of these other shows. These dramas would have run on Netflix for as long as Netflix wanted them. And at this point, it didn't make sense for Disney. And Netflix was looking at its return on investment and probably thinking, what are we really getting here that we can't do ourselves? It's just funny looking, as you say, at the evolution of this deal, because it was these four shows for one season leading up to The Defenders. And instead, they had fairly good reviews for Daredevil and for Jessica Jones and for the first season of Luke Cage. And there was this momentum that they seemed to be building. I don't want to put all the blame on Iron Fist, but Iron Fist came out and it absolutely threw the buzz into the garbage. They and made... then that changed showrunners and Daredevil, I think, had three different showrunners over three different seasons. I mean, and so they must have there thought was, there were clear creative issues when you're change, seeing showrunner changes that frequently. Yeah, but they must have thought that the Defenders was going to be their Avengers. They must have thought this final, you know, we're starting with these disparate characters, then we're going to bring them all together and it's going to be the biggest thing ever in superhero TV. And again, I don't want to blame Iron Fist, but by the time Iron Fist poisoned those waters, the Defenders came out and no one talked about it at all. It yeah. was an afterthought. I think when you're Netflix and you see what Marvel is doing on the big screen and they're creating this huge world with Iron Man and Captain America and all these other spandex wearing people who I can't remember. I'm sorry, Natalie, if you're listening. Netflix is probably thinking we want our own Marvel universe. And the expectation, I would imagine, creatively, is that they're going to get a fraction of what they're doing on the big screen. The same quality, same talent, same top production. The same hopeful returns on investment. These are all billion-dollar franchises at this point. And I think when Netflix took a step back and you look at the Rotten Tomato scores and the overall reviews and the sense among the fanboy crowd who weren't really completely embracing these the way that they have the Marvel movies, I think what Netflix really got is maybe some, like, low-budget TNT dramas. I think there was a sense that, for example, Daredevil was better in its third season. I have not. But was that it. too little, too late? Oh, I, I mean, season two, little, people checked out. And Punisher, which was never part of the original equation at all. Right, that he, was a, the spinoff of Daredevil. Exactly. That was an afterthought. And so some people, including Marshall Mathers, apparently really, really love that show. And it doesn't shock me. But yeah, there were a lot of things where if Netflix and Marvel had found a way to be flexible about anything in this process... Things could have worked out differently, but I think they screwed the entire franchise with the insistence on 13 episodes, with the 
way that they chose to handle spinoffs and the chronology and the buildup to and from things. I, I just think somewhere along the way, there was a large mess made out of what should have been probably a smaller but bigger. You know, it should have been a more condensed world that they were building that then blew up in Defenders. And we were like, yay. And we didn't. I haven't heard anyone talk about Defenders even the weekend it came out. It was such a forgotten thing. And I think what's interesting, too, is when you look at the future of Marvel on television, they just signed a big four show animated comedy deal with Hulu. And Hulu, after the Disney deal with Fox closes, is going to be predominantly owned by Disney. And when you look at the rest of the Marvel shows across the TV landscape, pretty much all of them are on brands that are going to fall under the Disney umbrella. So this is Disney pulling everything back to keep it for itself. And everyone from from Marvel TV's Jeff Loeb to Disney's streaming service, they're all saying that there's a chance we don't know for sure that some of these Netflix shows could live on with new seasons on Disney Plus, which is the big wait and see. Well, as long as I get more Iron Fist. That no one ever. Well, so for our fourth topic this week, we're going to switch things up a little bit and I'm going to read the introduction. It's going to change the dynamic forever. Number four. Let's talk TV history, Leslie. On February 28th, which I believe is next Thursday, ABC's Grey's Anatomy will top NBC's ER and become the longest-running medical drama ever. And that is with 332 episodes, which is pretty astounding for a TV show where if you tweet about it, you get... Is that show still on? You get 50 responses of, is that show still on from people who don't look at ratings and don't realize that Grey's Anatomy is still a massive hit for ABC in every measurable way. And it is a show with astounding longevity. That being and said, loyalty among its core viewers. That being said, it's also a show that I stopped watching about seven years ago and through no fault of it. It wasn't like I ever reached a breaking point of it. I think I just somehow ended up with nine episodes on my DVR and I went, okay, well, I guess I'm not watching Grey's Anatomy anymore, which was not a preference. You, on the other hand, remain a rather large fan of the show. Where does the show find itself as it reaches this pivotal and historical moment? I think the show is better than it's ever been in a long time. And I say a long time because I've been with this show since day one. The show holds a special place in my heart. It's one of the first things that my wife and I bonded over when we first started seeing each other. I was on set for Callie in Arizona's wedding, which was the primetime's first lesbian wedding, if you can actually believe that, and that it took this long. And what I think is, is so interesting is, you know, look, Krista Vernoff, who is the current showrunner, started out with the show for, the, for its first seven seasons and then left to go do a couple of pilots. She was on Shameless for a long time, another one of my favorites. And she returned after Shonda signed with Netflix. And Shonda hand-selected Krista to take over as showrunner, to be the, the, the creative driving force on the show. And what Krista has done is not just bring back some some fan-favorite characters. Katarina Scorsone is back. She's actually the first actress to start as a series regular on a spinoff and wind up a series regular on the, the original. And she's infused Grey's with not just timely and topical subjects, but also with the, the old school season, first early seasons sense of, of humor. And I mean, the scenes in the elevator. I mean, it's it's old school, like seriously, to drop a big Grey's Anatomy reference there. Seriously, it's good. It's still good. And it's better than it ever has been with, with Krista at the helm. Ooh, ooh, can I please, please, please well actually you and point out that Cleveland Brown from The Cleveland Show 
was spun off from Family Guy and then returned to Family Guy after the Cleveland show was canceled? We are talking live action <laughs> here, Dan. When, when, you live gave, action. when you gave the factoid, it was just the thing that somehow flew into my brain and I wanted to be that asshole who Right. Who if we want to talk about TV history, I mean, The Simpsons just got renewed for two more seasons. It's TV's longest running primetime series. It is funny that we're, we are in this moment of these shows with these absurd running lengths because you've got Law & Order SVU with 20 seasons and counting, which is... When that gets renewed for season 21, and it will, otherwise I think Dick Wolf is going to revolt against NBC, and which... And NBC would have no more programming. And then he would get a bazillion dollars to sign with any other studio outside of NBC. But I mean, when that show gets renewed, it'll be the longest running primetime drama series. And it will break Gunsmoke, which is... The record Dick Wolf wanted to do with the original Law and Order show, and he'll he'll wind up doing it with the spinoff, which is incredible. It is it is remarkable. You've got the Simpsons, and there's another Law and Order spinoff coming next season. Hate crimes picked up straight to series. Phew, kind of. And an FBI spinoff on CBS. The guy's everywhere. It is insane. What would you say the chances are of a 16th season for Grey's Anatomy? 100. percent Ellen Pompeo has a deal that covers all of season 16. She is currently the highest paid actress on a primetime drama series, $20 million a year, plus incentives and points. And look, Grey's Anatomy is a $4 billion show. It's sold internationally everywhere. I mean, you talk to the cast. I was on set and got to talk to a lot of the cast. And one of the things that I always enjoy talking to the actors about is the feedback that they hear and the places that they hear it. And they travel abroad and you've got one of the stars who is Italian, who spends summers in Italy and, and doesn't think he's ever going to be recognized. And now that's happening increasingly for him there, which is, I mean, you want to talk about the strength, talk about that. I mean, a guy who isn't a household name, who's really great on the show and who's getting recognized in his local country where Grey's Anatomy has been airing for a decade plus. I mean, this is a worldwide business and Ellen Pompeo continues to be the face of it. And, you know, I think Ellen and Shonda have both said that there will be no grays without Ellen. And, you know, Ellen has has been open about, you know, maybe it's time for me to do something else. I've been doing this for 15 years. I've been thinking about leaving. But then, you know, you see what the show does. I mean, when the show is on Netflix... It's brought in a whole new viewership, and that's helped goose the originals. And and very few shows can really reap that benefit when you've got a decade of history streaming that people are binging. So. And yet I'm still only going to know James Pickens from the uh, Beach Club season of Saved by the Bell. So, you know, what difference does any of this make anyway? I mean, and he's <laughs> – look, this, the show still has four series regulars, Ellen Pompeo, Chandra Wilson, Jim Pickens Jr., and Justin Chambers. And, I mean, these are roles that actors dream of. And I'm not asking you for spoilers because our notes specifically say not to ask you for spoilers, but you were on the set of this big old episode. What can you tell us that doesn't spoil anything about how they're doing it? Well, 15 seasons in, 332 episodes later, they still find a way to do something that hasn't been done on the show before. And that's all I can really say <laughs> without fear of uh, reprisal from Shonda and oh, ABC. No, no, no. But do, We do not want Shonda Rhimes upset with no, no, this no, no, no. podcast. That um, is not our intent. <laughs> but they, Krista finds a good way to, to bring it full circle and to give the, the cast their moment in the sun, at, uh, to use another. Ooh, how about, how about this as a way to ask you that question without asking you for spoilers? If someone is like me and they stopped watching... Is it the kind of episode that you could check back in to observe the milestone and still vaguely understand what's happening? Or would I be frustrated and confused? I think you could probably check it out. I mean, I haven't seen the episode yet. I've only I only know small 
broad strokes about it. But I think what's interesting is, yeah, I think you could come back in. And I mean, it is serialized and you definitely like this is this show has definitely been Meredith's journey. And as she found love with her McDreamy and so forth, and now McDreamy is dead and and the season has been focused on that character finding love again. And I think these stories, these are all human human stories. You know, that's why the, one of the reasons why the, this show resonates so much is because you find yourself rooting for some of these characters or better, you see yourself in, in some of these characters. I mean, you know, for me, when Callie came out and, and there was the, the scene with I Can See Leaves, because all of a sudden it's like, you know who you are because you realize that you're gay. That to me, that was a groundbreaking moment for me. I mean, it was the same thing as when I saw Ellen come out on TV when I was in college. I'm like, that was the literally the first time that I saw a character who looked like me and was struggling with with things that I was struggling with on TV. And I think Grey's Anatomy has been and continues to be that for a lot of people. It's still strong 15 seasons in and I still love it. And it's a good episode from everything that I've been told. And I thought it was worth raising a glass and toasting to Grace to this uh, to this moment. By so. all means. And I will even set my DVR to watch this milestone episode next week. And speaking of TV shows next week, that feels like a transition. That is a transition. As always, for our fifth and final topic, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner segment. Number five. Dan, this week's new premieres include ABC's Whiskey Cavalier, which ABC, as we've discussed, will sneak after the Oscars, NBC's The Enemy Within, starring Dexter grad Jennifer Carpenter and Morris Chestnut, and the return of Pamela Adlon's FX comedy Better Things. Dan, what you got this week? Oh, there, there is no question that the best thing premiering on TV in the next week is the new season of Better Things. It was my number one show of two years ago. And it was a fantastic show then. And it was a fantastic show that got somewhat upstaged. And by somewhat upstaged, I mean very upstaged by the scandal involving Louis C.K. And Louis C.K., who executive produced a lot of shows. And in some cases, like Baskets, his absence or presence didn't necessarily matter. On the other hand, he was the writer or co-writer of every single episode of the second season. So his absence in this third season is not a small absence and Pamela Adlon who directed every episode once again and has become rapidly one of the best directors on TV. I I think it cannot be said enough how spectacular she is as a director. I would, if I were a movie studio, I would be trying to get her to direct a feature desperately in her next hiatus. So she had a writer's room this time and basically I've seen three episodes of the new season and it is Every bit as good, every bit as effective, and every bit as funny slash powerful slash significant as it was last season. It is a great show. You can't watch anything better. And if you haven't watched the second season, you should do that. So looking at the other things, The Enemy Within is NBC's latest attempt to run things through the blacklist Xerox machine. You know, the image got a little bit degraded with Blindspot. And now it's once again getting degraded a little bit more, which is too bad because no one is giving Jennifer Carpenter things to do that 
accentuate the things that she did well on Dexter. And it's, she was great on Dexter. She was. She and, was the best part of that show. And she had, I don't know if that's necessarily. I'm biased. <laughs> I thought she was the best part of that show. No, no. She was, she was great on Dexter. The fact that she never got an Emmy nomination for it, I don't believe is, is ridiculous. Though they did her no favors with where they took that character down the home stretch. They did nobody any favors with where they took any of that down the home no, stretch. No, we shall forget Lumberjack Dexter existed. <laughs> or also the Dexter and his sister are making weird, creepy eyes at each other and getting nasty. Enough of that. But yes, so that's a, an unnecessary show. It is every NBC political conspiracy drama you've ever seen before, only less interesting. I, I think that Whiskey Cavalier is a better show because it promises pretty people flirting in international settings and it delivers on on that. And two very likable stars in Foley and Lauren Cohen. Absolutely. And and they both do. And if you like them, I mean, I think probably there are people out there who think that that Scott Foley is too bland and that's fine. If you if you happen to be in that camp, this is not going to convince you otherwise. I think he is he is just fine here as a lead. I think Lauren Cohen is having a great time getting to where fancy clothes and occasionally getting to bathe and shower which no one let her do on walking and not dead. roam around in in the flea and dirt ridden atlanta sets of the walking dead yeah i feel generally much better for her she also doesn't have to do the strange southern accent they forced on her for that show all sorts of things i don't think the show has any depth whatsoever i, I think it's almost shocking how little meaning there is beneath the surface on this but the surface is pretty the surface is is glossy there's some wittiness and some cringeworthiness, but, you know, I think if you go in expecting exactly what it is, it delivers on that. If you expect it to be a great show or even a very good show, it is most certainly not. But, but if it's, you're... It's, it's... It is what it needs to be. It's a broadcast action procedural with two big name stars that looks at least halfway interesting. And if it can can do what ABC needs it to do, that's it'll be a win for everybody. Uh, somebody. ABC mostly. Yeah. I mean, and, and Warner Brothers. So Exactly. No, it, it it you know, again, don't expect anything too good, but if you if you go in with the right level of expectations, it probably will will satisfy you. But really and truly, better things is the best thing on TV next well, week. This feels like a good note to end things on. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And, Dan? If you like us, please rate us or write reviews or tweet at us. We like talking to you. We like hearing from people who listen, whether you love us or really want me to shut up. So, anyway, feedback, it's nice. We appreciate it. And with that in mind, till next week, Leslie. Till next week, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.